This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. Voluntary principle states that all human relations should happen by mutual consent or not at all. This podcast aims to promote respect for the voluntary principle in all walks of life and for all age groups. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Everything Voluntary. Liberty Classroom is the premier online university for libertarian and free market thought. Take courses from your computer or while driving in your car. To sign up for Liberty Classroom, please use our special link at libertyclassroom.info. That's libertyclassroom.info. Before we start the episode, I want to invite you to join me as a featured guest. I'd love to chat and get to know you and give you this platform to bounce your ideas around. To schedule, go to the main website at everythingvoluntary.com. On the right-hand side, there's a link to schedule with me immediately. Click that link, select a day and time, answer the questions, and submit. That's all it takes. Thank you so much. Hello, welcome to the podcast. It's December 5th, 2020, moving right along here towards the end of the wonderful year that it's been. In this episode, I wanted to riff on a few things. I'm not doing one of my usual episode types, but I've had the opportunity recently to listen to a couple of debates, including the former Stanford and Yale and Harvard economist and proud Marxist or Marxian socialist Richard D. Wolf. These two debates, the first um, I linked to already was with David Friedman, who is a, I guess, a Chicago school economist after his father, Milton Friedman. He's now retired, but he was a professor of law and a professor of economics at Santa Clara University. And the second with Gene Epstein, who is, um, I guess, an Austrian school uh, economist or proponent. I don't know if he's an economist. He writes on economic themes. He was a former editor of Barron's Magazine and the current director of the Soho Forum, which does, which is a monthly debate series. So I listened to both of those debates, and I have some thoughts about some things involving Richard Wolff and capitalism and socialism. And I thought, you know what, let's riff on this a bit because he's, he's, uh, Richard Wolff has made some interesting points, um, but he's also made some not so interesting points. Now, the first thing I want to say is that he, he really kind of seems like, how do I, how do I put this nicely? Okay. I want to say in an intellectual sleazeball, but I don't want to say sleazeball. The point I want to make about him is how incredibly disingenuous and, and annoying he was in both debates. In both debates, so I think it's a safe assumption that he's probably regularly does this, after his debating opponent gives their introduction, gives the beginnings of their argument about the superiority of capitalism over socialism or what have you, Almost the first thing he said in both debates was, I don't understand anything you just said. (laughs) 
Right. Now, in both debates, Gene Epstein and David Friedman, they say some pretty, pretty common things. They use pretty basic language. They don't, they, you know, they're not really saying anything controversial. And they're not really saying anything too extreme. And then he pretty much starts out with, I mean, I mean, even in the second case with Gene Epstein, Epstein, where he, from his introduction, he quoted out of Wolf's seven-year-old book several times. And the first thing Wolf says is, you know, an author writes a book and he lets it go into the wild and other people interpret it. And I have no idea what you just said. It doesn't, it doesn't, I don't recognize it at all. (laughs) And Gene's like, I quoted your book, man. And he did that in Friedman too. He basically said something along along the lines of three quarters of everything you just said is is totally unrecognizable to me. (laughs) So this seems to be some kind of a debate tactic of his to totally dismiss and deflect and disregard what his opponents say so that he can then ramble about his own ideas, which then puts him on the offensive. And the person he's debating with is now on the defensive and now responding to what he says instead of him responding to what his opponents are saying. So that's, that, seems, um, that seems underhanded to me, but whatever. He, he mostly at this point, and anytime you try to bring up how socialism was done in the past. He'll he'll say things like, nobody's talking about that anymore. That doesn't matter. We have, and he always uses this phrase, new directions in socialism today. It's like it's like he's a glee club or something. We have new directions in socialism, and this is what this is what we're talking about now. And to him, from what I can tell, based on these debates, and apparently I can't I can't read his book because he doesn't recognize it anymore. At least that's what he told Gene Epstein. The difference between capitalism and socialism is simply the way in in which products are produced. If products are produced through an employer employee uh, firm organization, that's capitalism. If products are produced through a democratic worker cooperative co-ownership firm organization, then that's socialism. Now, never mind. I mean, the entire history of socialism is not about that. Okay. The entire history of socialism has been who decides, who decides how the means of production should be used. Do private owners decide or do public owners via the state, right? Because if a population of 10 million people collectively own a shoe factory, 10 million people cannot in any way work together in that shoe factory to make shoes. It can't happen. Instead, decision-making authority over the means of production for that shoe factory must be delegated and consolidated into a small group. This has always happened through government, through the state. And then the state then appoints appoints through its own decision-making on behalf of the people or the People's Republic or whatever they end up calling themselves, managers and whatnot, to the individual uh, factories, okay? So that's how socialism has always actually tried to exist in practice. But he's not talking about that anymore, apparently. Even though if if you attack the Soviet Union, he defends it in saying you really did have all that growth that Paul Samuelson attributed to it, which it didn't. And then he'll get into how there's some worker co-op that's existed for 70 years in Portugal, and it's the seventh largest company in Portugal. And 
what? What is that supposed to prove? That socialism is superior? <laughs> All right. So if Wolf wants to disregard the socialisms of the past, then that's fine. I think humanity should disregard it and forget it. Not forget it, but uh, throw it away as a, as a viable concept, as something that would ever work forever, right? Humanity should throw it away. So if Richard Wolff wants to throw that away, fantastic, great. And if Richard Wolff wants to say that socialism today is simply worker, uh, democratic worker co-ops, then both David Friedman acknowledged this and Gene Epstein acknowledged this, and I happily and joyfully acknowledge that that's totally fine by me. If people want to organize their firm in a democratic worker cooperative, worker share of ownership model, then they should do that. And if people want to organize their firm in an in a echelonical, I'm not going to use that misnomer hierarchical hierarchy, which means etymologically, it means sacred ruler. It doesn't mean echelonical business organization. It doesn't mean um, decision-making power is subordinated through various levels, director, manager, supervisor, employee. That's echelony, okay? That's not hierarchy. And I think left anarchists make a, a confusing mistake when they say that anarch when they say fundamentally anarchy is about opposing hierarchy. Well, it's not. If you define hierarchy that way, because hierarchy is is not just simple echelony. I mean, I have echelony in my family, right? My children and their decision making is subordinate to me, to mine. Why is that? Is it because I claim ownership over them? Uh, I guess, right? In a way, I I I, I claim caretakership, right? They are dependent on me and I am their caretaker. I consider them self-owners and I consider them having the ability to be an owner of scarce resources, right? Of having their own private property. But they're also mostly existing and living their lives through my private property. So when it comes to decisions that involve my private property, their decisions are subordinate to mine. That's echelony. What Left anarchists would say, that's hierarchy. That's got to go. I disagree with that. So I'm not going to call it hierarchy. That's a misnomer. I think it's dumb to say it. I don't care for it. But we can talk about business organization. And we can talk about the employer-employee relationship. How does that come about? Okay. And if Richard Wolff is going to claim that there's something wrong or evil or bad or immoral or unethical in the employer-employee arrangement, which is what he does, then he needs to go back to first principles and explain that. And in, in neither debate did he do that. So maybe he does elsewhere. But I'm going to explain it. Because in my opinion, it's not inherently wrong or bad or evil or any of those things. It can be, but by definition, it's not. Okay? Any relationship can be you know, bad or wrong or, or criminal, if we want to say, and I'll define what that means or unethical or immoral if, if certain features are present. But just simply an employer who um, gives direction and instruction to employees, that's not, that's not by definition bad or wrong or, you know, what am I going to say here? I'm going to say, I'm going to say, I'm going to say bad. And I mean any, you know, fill it, fill in the, fill in the blank when I say bad, fill it in with evil, immoral, unethical, whatever. I'm just going to say bad. So I'm not re repeating all of those over and over. <laughs> It, it it depends on what other 
features are present in that relationship. Okay, my head is building a nice little spider web right now of ideas. <laughs> and it's not order, ordering them very well. I got to get them out. They're there. I got to get them out. Here we go. Let's start with first principles, okay? I'm going to ask a series of questions that are going to take us back to the beginning. Where does a business come from? Well, it comes from the owners, the business owners, right? The, the first officer, if you will, on the incorporation documents. It, it typically comes from their head, right? It starts as an idea. The idea that they want to provide some service or create some good and sell it to willing buyers. Typically, and there's different kinds of businesses. There's nefarious businesses. There's bad businesses, business models. And I'll, I'll get into a point that Richard Wolf makes about that in a second. But it starts in his head and he, and he thinks, you know, I want to I do this because I want to make my mark in the world and I want to make some profits and I want to, you know, whatever his reasons are, he wants to start this business. He has this really good idea. He wants to glorify himself. He wants to make some profits. He wants to leave a legacy, whatever. He just thinks it's a good idea. It can make some money, primarily, probably, and that's where it starts. And, you know, after he has this idea, he has to think, how can I do this? Okay, what are the, what are the institutional structures and the conventions and customs within my environment that I can navigate through in order to make this happen? Well, he's probably looking at institutions like private property and uh, markets. And, you know, some, some level of legal regulation and whatever. And he's, he's operating within that framework to start his business and get it going. Where does that stuff come from? Where do the, those institutions come from? Let's take probably the most fundamental of all those institutions, private property. Where does that come from? Why does this person think that he, that he can privately own property? And what is that? And arrange it in this way and then sell it without any violent interference by other people? What makes him believe that he can actually start and maintain this business without being, it being shut down? Well, it's a question of like, you know, uh, convention or custom stability, stuff like that, right? He lives in this environment. Like I said, it has certain institutions that he can rely on to, to understand that, you know, if I start this business and I do things this way, Nobody's going to come shut me down. Okay, there's, there's somewhat of a social guarantee within this particular environment that, that that's a possible thing. Okay, and there's different parts of the world where that is more possible than others, right? This guy with this idea who's going to make this amazing business, and let's say he's one of the 10% of new businesses that actually succeeds the first couple of years, he's not going to do that in certain other environments where doing that is incredibly risky to um, to his, what he considers to be his property. He's going to go to an area, if he's not already there, where he can do that. And he has some assurances from society, from the culture, from maybe the government, that he's not going to be violently interfered with, that he's going to be able to have the opportunity and the chance to see if he can make this work without other people coming along and taking it arbitrarily. Okay. But let's back up another level. Okay. Where does private property come from? Where does respect for property rights come from? Right? It's mostly convention, right? It's mostly the result of decades and centuries and millennia of people recognizing societies, communities, cultures, recognizing the value and allowing 
individuals to take scarce resources out of nature, to claim ownership of them, and then to be granted the exclusive right of control, which is what ownership is. Okay, so why, you know, where does this come from? It comes from two things. It comes from the fact that resources are scarce, that human wants outnumber the means to satisfy all those wants. And it comes from people's desire to reduce conflict with one another, right? That's where homesteading, original appropriation of scarce resources, including land and other scarce resources, originally come from. So we can set up an ethic. We can set up an ethic, a rational ethic based on original appropriation. Uh, Actually, take a step back from there. Um, Before I get to that, take a step back even further. Who is doing the appropriating, right? And what, quote, what right do they have to do the appropriating? Well, it comes from two places. Number one, the scarce resources are currently unclaimed, okay? They're currently unowned. No other human being has, has made a claim on a given scarce resources that, and so we consider it unowned. It's not, it's not rational, in my opinion, to consider it anything other than simply unowned. Okay, some people like to say, well, if it's, if it's unowned, then it's really collectively owned by everybody on the planet. Well, now you're excluding species, right? Why are you excluding species and not excluding? You're going to exclude species. Why not exclude races? Why not exclude you know, people outside the tribe? Why not exclude everybody in the out group and just your in group? How about we just exclude everybody but the person who appropriates it, right? Let's just, it's unowned. The first person comes along and says, I want to use this. So I'm going to make some obvious um, indication that I'm claiming this, say, parcel of land for my own use. But what gives this person the right to use their bodies, their body, to act in that way? Okay, so we've got to step, make a step back four. We've got to recognize that this person seems to be under the impression that he has the exclusive right of control over his own body, over his own person, over his own mind. Okay, so that's that's kind of where these things start. They start with self-ownership. Okay, so must we recognize self-ownership? Depends on what our goals are, right? If we want to get along with everybody else, then we probably should. If we want to be ethically consistent, we probably should, because if 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 we're going to demand that people recognize our self-ownership, then we probably should recognize theirs. Okay, so this is, this is yeah, this is a social construct. It begins as a mental construct and it goes outward. It's a social construct. But it's also true that nobody besides the person who's actually in control of the body in question can prove any sort of right or privilege of having some uh, claim of control or ownership over somebody else's body. I mean, the only people that could do that would be your parents. And they could probably only do it while while you're little. And they can still they can still overpower your will with their own. Okay, so so maybe. Maybe parents are owners of their children until their children sort of expropriate themselves. <laughs> I don't like that. I don't think I don't think that's a solid argument. But it's probably the best. Anybody else can can claim over a person's body would be your parents. And only for a limited amount of time. But even that, there's a weakness there. Tell you what, I'll link to an article by Stefan Kinsella titled How We Come to Own Ourselves. And he does a pretty good job there. All right, so 
self-ownership. That's the beginning. That's, that's one of the very first principles, right? And then we can, we can take some insight from praxeology and we can say, what is human action? Well, human action is the, and I just talked about this in the Austrian economics uh, criticism episode I just recorded. Human action is the purposeful utilization of means over a period of time in order to achieve a desired end, right? So we as human beings recognize that there's things around us that we don't like, we want to change. They, they, cause, us to, they cause us to experience what Mises called felt uneasiness, right? I guess that was the best way to describe it. So we want to make a change. And in order to do that, we've got to utilize means over a period of time in order to achieve that. These means are scarce, scarce means. Not everybody can, not everybody can have a say over how any given scarce means or scarce resource can be utilized. Not everybody can have that say because then you couldn't do anything without polling, you know, 8 billion other people. It's totally ridiculous. So instead, what what has spontaneously evolved throughout human history is that human beings will make claims over unowned scarce resources, and then other people will hopefully acknowledge their ownership and leave it alone. And not everybody does, right? There could be a society that's always completely respected property rights, private property rights um, that start through self-ownership and original appropriation. And then some other people come into town and try to just take stuff, right? And that be, that that becomes what 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 people would call crime. Okay, crime, and I said I was going to define this. So within this whole context of self-ownership and original appropriation and, and thus leaving, leading to private property, crime would be defined as pretty much a trespass. And another way to call another way to say a trespass, which is which is entering or using or exercising some type of control over somebody else's property. Okay, whether you walk on it, whether you you pick it up without permission, whether you you take it, right? Whether you attack it, you try to damage it. And this is true of our bodies as as much as it is of uh, the private part the private property that exists outside of our bodies. So libertarians call this kind of behavior aggression, right? Or the initiation of force, right? A trespass, a private property trespass is the initiation of force. And it doesn't have to be super violent. It could simply be me noticing that you left the keys into your car and quote unquote, peacefully opening the door, sitting in it, turning it on and slowly driving it away. Now, this wasn't a violent act. It wasn't a violent episode, but you still utilized force to open the door, turn the key, you know, sit in the car, turn the keys, drive it off. Force was involved, if we understand physics, force as a force (laughs) was used at every step of the way. And you initiated it. Okay, so the initiation of force we call, libertarians call, aggression. So a a necessary corollary of self-ownership and original appropriation private property is the non-aggression principle. It's where this comes from. All right, because if you're not the owner and you don't have permission by the owner to use the property, then you are by definition, by fact, objectively, initiating force or committing aggression against me or my property when you 
exercise control over it in some way when you trespass. And any time you trespass or you initiate force or you commit aggression, and that's saying the same thing in three different ways, you are committing a crime. That is a crime, right? And under the libertarian ethic, under, under what I've been describing, that is what crime is. All right, so people can behave in two ways. People can exercise their liberties. Some might, people might say exercise their rights. I, I, think it's, I think it's superior to call them liberties, not rights. I think it's less confusing. And people can behave uh, or people can commit crimes. Okay, so let's, let's say that the same way. People can commit liberties <laughs> or people can commit crimes. Okay, those are, those are the two things that people can do. And everything that they do, every behavior they engage in, every act that they act, <laughs> it's either a liberty or it's a crime. How do we tell the difference? How do we know? Property rights. Okay, who has ownership? Who has property rights in the scarce resources, the means being utilized? If the person has property rights and the means being utilized, then they're simply committing a liberty. If somebody else has a property right in the means being utilized by the person and they don't have the consent or permission or license to use those means, that property, then they are committing a crime. Okay? So it's, it's, not, it's not a difficult thing. And I, I get it. Some people might be hung up on, again, where property rights come from and why, why should we respect original appropriation? Why should we respect self-ownership? And these are great questions. I'm going to link to two Kinsella articles, the first on self-ownership and the second on the second on why only libertarian-based property rights, which is what I've been talking about, are actually justified. It's a really long blog, blog post utilizing a lot of different um, sources and quotes, and he has his own commentary in between and blah, blah, blah. It's really good. So let's just put that aside. Let's, let's just operate on that premise and move forward. Right, so 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 let's go back to our our guy who had the business idea. He recognizes that the only resources he can use is either his own property or other people's property with their permission. Okay, and some of this might be funding. Right, he might ask other people to give him money so that he can buy himself some means, <laughs> some resources that he needs to build his business. Right, materials that sort of stuff. And he's using other people's money with permission to do it. And now, because he is the owner of all of the resources involved, including his own body, he is able to, he is able to negotiate and hire people to come and in exchange for them, in exchange for their efforts in rearranging his property, he will pay them money. And up to this point, everything is totally legitimate and totally kosher as far as the the resources that he's using. They're all his. They're all his or they're his on on uh, on loan contractually, right? So he puts up a sign that says now hiring. Okay, it's a small business. I need one or two people to to start helping me build this in exchange for your efforts for 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 following my guidance and my training and and doing what I need you to do. I will give you some of my money. All right, so he he creates an employer-employee relationship. And Richard Wolf wants to say that this is bad. Okay, but there's another way to look at it. You can look at it as a boss bossing, you know, one self-owner bossing bossing around other self-owners 
and threatening them with being fired in which they have to find a different job or starve and die, which is how he seems to view the situation. Or you can see it as one self owner giving an opportunity to other self owners, giving them another option to escape their current matrix of options to keep themselves alive. Okay, because that's that's a matrix that we all face, right? We all face the possibility of either eating or starving and dying. Everybody does. Some people just better utilize their scarce resources in a way to protect themselves from having to really deal with that by making sure that they have enough to eat every day and looking forward in time and setting up their own institutions to prevent that very real possibility from ever being realized any point in the future, right? Those are the savers and the investors and the builders and the creators and so forth. But what this employer is doing is he's giving people options that they didn't have before. Okay, this employer is not the one who's threatening to kill them if they don't eat. Okay, that's 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 just the nature of reality. Okay, that's we can call we can we can reify we can reify that person who's doing that. We can call her mother nature. Okay, just for the just for the sake of a mental exercise, that's mother nature. Mother nature is threatening us all with death if we don't eat. If we don't eat. So, you know, as a person who who assume as Assumedly, assumedly, presumably wants to avoid death, I've got to find food. Okay. And I can go out into nature, into unowned virgin territory, and I can start appropriating food sources. I can do that, or I should be allowed to do that. Nobody should be stopping me. That would be wrong. That would be a crime, right? Like we talked about. But if I'm born in an area where I'd have to travel really far to get to some place that's unowned, Instead, I'm going to look at the options around me and I'm going to see, wow, there's, there's, there's now hiring signs everywhere. There's some people who are you know, currently giving me food for free because they love me. Those are my parents. So I got, I got it pretty good, at least for 18 years. But you know, my birthday's coming up and they've, decided, they've said they're, not, they're no longer going to provide for me. So I've got to start figuring out what I'm going to do to survive. So I've got certain options. I've always got Mother Nature right there with her sickle. Or I guess we should say death <laughs> with his sickle ready to take me if I can't figure this out. So if anybody's the bad guy, if anybody's the the criminal, the aggressor in this situation, it's mother nature and it's death. Okay, as as corporeal beings. <laughs> Instead, I'm going to look out and see what my options are and I see a, a a now hiring sign. Great. Here's a new option for me. Let's see if I can convince this guy to give me some of his money. So I go in, I talk to him, I interview, I, and, I, and I sell him on me. I say, I can do everything you want me to do. I can do it really well. I have this experience. I used to build things as a kid, blah, blah, blah. Please hire me. And he agrees to hire me. There's nothing criminal going on here. There's no aggression. There's no trespass. This is two people exercising their liberties to trade with one another. And in this case, they're doing so on a continual daily basis, hourly, minute by minute basis. And as long as I keep doing what he wants me to do, then he'll keep giving me his money. Okay. There is nothing criminal in this arrangement. Now, what I could do as somebody who's looking for a way to survive is I could go find some, some friends. Okay. And I could say, Hey guys, I got this great business idea, but you know, I'm just a, I'm just a young kid. I'm a nobody. I don't have any, uh, 
I don't have any credit experience, so I'm really high risk. Nobody wants to borrow me money. I got a little bit of savings. I've had a job since I was 16. I've been really good at saving that. Let's get together. I've got this really good idea, and I know all of you are capable of helping me with this. Okay, let's build an app, (laughs) okay? And the four of us, or five or six or seven of us, we will all be equal owners in this. And we'll all we'll make all of our decisions democratically and we'll build this company and we'll be the best app for this particular market in the world and we'll get rich. So they do that. And now, you know, as long as it as long as it remains seven employees, then they may or may not become a successful worker co-op. But everything they're doing is not criminal either, as long as they're utilizing their own property or property they've contracted for, or traded for. All right, so now throughout this long-winded explanation, other than at the beginning, I haven't defined this system as capitalism or as socialism, right? Because I think I think that to do either, we've got to introduce, you know, the institution of government and how that comes about. And in my opinion, it comes about, it comes about in illegitimate ways. It comes about in criminal ways. Governments everywhere across the planet Earth, states and governments everywhere, all had their origin in conquest, right? And Richard Wolff likes to call this capitalism because, right, he'll, he'll talk about colonization. And the king wants to go out and get more resources for himself and his kingdom as a private owner who commands people beneath him. So he's an employer, they're employees, and they go around the world conquering people and colonizing people and stealing resources. And because this is all done through employer-employee, right, or king and lords and, you know, or he talks about feudalism, right? You had lords and serfs, and this is all, you know, employer-employee. This is all the same kind of uh, echelony, right, or he'll call it hierarchy. Then this is all a part of capitalism. Right. So anytime you start throwing at him, well, you know, socialistic governments have murdered millions of their own citizens over the past. He'll say, don't even get me started on there. That's kind of how he sounds, because we can add up all the, the deaths and destruction by colonizers and slave markets throughout the history of the world. And that would all that would all be the death count for capitalism. And why is he doing this? He does this because he's hung up on defining capitalism simply as hierarchy, like I've already explained, and socialism as um, people working together cooperatively and nobody subordinate to anybody else, right? So he has this very simplistic view of these things, and then he's able to make these claims. And from what I can tell, he's, he's the first economist to come along and define these things this way, but whatever, it doesn't matter, okay? At this point, it's just semantics. It doesn't matter. I would disagree with them. I would say, this is, and that this is my semantical argument, that both echelonical employer-employee firms in a market and worker cooperative organized firms in a market are both examples of capitalism because it's private individuals controlling private property. So to me, the defining characteristic of capitalism is private property, private ownership of the means of production. And whether you organize your form echelonically or worker, democratic worker cooperatively, it doesn't matter. Your business will survive and make profits or it will make losses and fail based on market forces. And whenever, whenever markets were brought up, okay, he, didn't, he didn't like 
he didn't like to equate markets with capitalism. He'll say markets have always existed. Nobody's talking about markets. They've always existed. They'll always exist, right? Capitalists probably wouldn't agree that slave markets were a form of capitalism. Of course, he does. And I think that's an interesting point. So let me give him a little credit here. Okay, there are markets exist and they're not always, um, I guess we could say legitimate. They're not always solely based on people exercising their liberties and their own private property, right? There are markets in stolen goods, for example. There are slave markets. There are uh, probably markets for political corruption and stuff like that. So markets, I think I, I, I think I agree with him um, when, we, when we say we should separate the concept of markets from the concept of capitalism. We should. They are different concepts. They're related in many ways, right? They intersect in different ways, but they're not the same thing. Okay, that's fine. Granted. Concession, right? But I, I, I think it's ridiculous to call um, colonization by kings and slave markets as capitalism. Okay, we could say there, there are capitalistic elements. Okay, granted, that's fine. That seems fine to me. But if, if capitalism, and this is an if, okay, it's an if that we don't agree on. If capitalism is simply the private ownership of the means of production, then private ownership, okay, as a concept, that entails self-ownership and private property. Okay, and if you're if you're violating people's self-ownership or private property, either with with stolen goods markets or slave markets, then you're you're not recognizing private ownership, right? You're committing crimes against people. So, you know, semantically, in my opinion, those things should be excluded from the definition of capitalism. It just doesn't make sense. Right. It's it's like saying capitalism for me, but not for thee. Okay. I'm gonna exercise private ownership over my means of production, but I include you as a part of my means of production. You're my slaves. <laughs> that's an that's a very exclusive definition of capitalism. And we can say that and we can just define it that way and we can describe it that way, and then we can proceed with an analysis. But if we make the equivocation at the end of our argument that therefore capitalism is bad then we've done, we've committed fallacy and we've done a, a major intellectual disservice. You can't just want to reach the conclusion that capitalism bad. So then at the beginning, you define capitalism in a bad way and then repeat yourself throughout your argument. And then at the end, repeat the conclusion, capitalism bad. You can do it, but I will view you as an idiot. Okay. Maybe that was a little harsh. I'll, I will view you as a disingenuous um, and an intellectual fraud. So, you know, Richard Wolf will say that a king um, exercising power over his kingdom, because he considers everything in his kingdom a means of production, and he's the private owner, he'll consider that a form of capitalism. So any evil that's done that way is or should be considered the evils of capitalism. Fine. He can do whatever he wants. I think it's ridiculous to, to, to think that way. There's nothing wrong with uh, being a king, right? Just Just per se. If you're a king who um, simply rules over your private property that has existed within your family for a very long time, and you've made um, free will, if we, if, if we can say free will contracts and good faith contracts with people over time to, to work certain parcels of your estate, and, you know, then those people are doing it under your, uh, your purview, right? Are they serfs? 
not if not if not if this arrangement came about in a legitimate way not if everybody was ex- exercising their liberties and brought this about okay if we wanted to find monarchy which it's kind of in the name as just one person utilize, you know conquering and 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 you know in, in many cases having to pay right their family builds wealth over generations and they get stronger and stronger and they're able to pay armies to to conquer other lords and, and take it, take their lands and blah 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 this is just crime all around. And that's that's why monarchy is called monarchy. It's rulership, right? And it, it, it's, it's a form of crime. But if we want to own an estate totally legitimately based on everything I've talked about, original appropriation, self-ownership, private property, blah, 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 and we want to call ourselves king and give ourselves that title, then that's fine. We are within our liberties to do that. Nobody else has to recognize that, right? Just like when some university awards you a doctorate, and now that university calls you doctor, and you call yourself doctor, nobody else has to recognize that. Nobody else has to call you doctor. It might be rude. It might be considered rude not to. They don't have to. They shouldn't be compelled to. They're not obligated to. It's well within their liberties not to. So whatever. The only thing I'm concerned about, and I didn't really get into this, and and we're getting pretty long here, so I'm not going to. I mean, I kind of have talked around it. But what voluntarism is, is the philosophy centered on the voluntary principle. What is that? Well, I say it at the very beginning of the podcast in the, uh, uh, when I play the intro music. The voluntary principle is that all human relations should happen voluntarily or by mutual consent or not at all, right? And this, this begs the question, you know, what is mutual consent? Well, you got to back up. You got to go to first principles. You got to recognize self-ownership, private property, and what consent means as it involves scarce resources and who owns them. So if you want to voluntarily, you know, if you want to behave, act on the voluntary principle, then you're simply exercising your liberties and you're avoiding crime. And if everybody follows the voluntary principle, then I think we can all be happy. I think that is the best shot of mankind achieving peace and prosperity and contentment the world over is through widespread adoption and adherence to the voluntary principle, both in the economy, in markets, if you will, um, as well as at home. I think that we should, we should recognize and, and adopt voluntary principle within our homes. We should recognize our kids as self-owners, as having liberties, and we should not commit crimes against them. So that's why I do what I do. That's why I podcast. That's why I publish the website. That's why I keep it going, keep it running, keep yapping my mouth. So if Richard Wolff wants to say that socialism is just democratic, worker-owned cooperatives, then fine. Consider me a socialist. That sounds fine by me, right? But if Richard Wolff wants to start using the criminal organization known as government to commit crimes against property owners in order to create incentives or to um, to some way help worker cooperatives get established or take over um, firms currently held, uh, currently owned by other people, things like that, which is what socialists in the past have wanted to do, right? The Lenins and the Trotskys and the Stalins and the whatever, the Maos. That's where you lose me. When socialism leaves, when socialism disregards or forgets or violates the voluntary principle, that's when I get off the train. So if you can, if you can assure me, if you can guarantee to me, Mr. Wolf, that your worker cooperatives will only come about in, a, in an organic, legitimate, voluntary way, 
and that's all you mean by socialism, then I'm on board with you. I think that would be great. If I work for a company, which I don't, I'm self-employed, I'm an independent contractor, I decide who I work for and when, and I've done this for five years. So in a sense, in a sense, my company is a, is a democratic <laughs> worker cooperative. I just happen to be the only worker. So I'm, I'm already within your socialistic uh, um, organization. I'm already with you. Okay. I'm on board. If you can guarantee respect for the voluntary principle, right? Which, which necessarily depends on non-aggression and private property and self-ownership and original appropriation, right? All of those things build what becomes the voluntary principle. If you can guarantee for me respect for the voluntary principle in your socialist society, then I'm on board, man. David Friedman said the same thing. Gene Epstein said the same thing. I've got no problem with organizing business that way. If that's all you mean by socialism, great. Sign me up. There may be, David Friedman believes that there are reasons why that, why that organization is inferior in the market and why you don't see it very often. So, you know, market forces may not be very favorable to that, but in other cases, and maybe with some tweaks, maybe it is more viable. Everybody should have the opportunity to try. You've got some new way of arranging your firm, do it. Try it. Respect the voluntary principle and we're friends. That's all it comes down to for me, right? I'm okay with left anarchists and right anarchists as long as they operate under the basis of the voluntary principle, voluntarism, we're friends. All right. This was a really long riff. I think I got everything out that I wanted to. Um, I'll link to both of those debates that I mentioned. You can listen to Richard Wolff and what he has to say yourself. Of course, he's got books and other stuff. You could listen to him. I don't know how honest he was being in these debates. Um, I got the feeling that he was not being totally honest in some cases, that he was being disingenuous in other cases. And this whole seeming tactic of feigning ignorance of what the other person's saying at the beginning in order to put himself on the offensive is, is really underhanded. But whatever. All right, that's going to do it. Um, remember, okay, and this is what the voluntary principle is all about. Don't hurt people, don't take their stuff, and don't ask permission. Thank you so much for listening and have a better day. Please send your comments and questions to everythingvoluntary at gmail.com. Please consider supporting this podcast and everythingvoluntary.com by setting up an automatic monthly donation at patreon.com forward slash EBC. One-time donations are also accepted at paypal.me forward slash everythingvoluntary. Will you do us a big favor? Will you rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening from? That really helps. And one more thing. Please share the podcast with your friends. We really appreciate it.